Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. Well, family, if you got a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. That's where we're going to be. I got three verses for you as we continue our struggle is real series dot 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 we want to we want i've been loving this series and i hope you have too i i'd love to hear from you send me an email uh, let me know uh, what you've been thinking about this series and i pray that god has kind of put pulled about the layers a little bit in your heart in the midst of this pandemic and you've been dealing with some of those struggles that we've been walking through so with comfort control power significance all of those struggles because we deal with different struggles and especially right now in the pandemic they're kind of highlighted so, so don't miss what God is doing in this season. Amen. First John chapter three, verses one through three. If you got it, I'm gonna let you go. Hey, say got it in the chat right now. I'll give you a second. First John chapter three, verses one through three. Here now the reading of God's word. It says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Very word of God, amen. Today I wanna to talk about the struggle with identity. The struggle with identity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word being sharper than a two-edged sword. God, I pray this one prayer as I pray each week is that you would hide me behind your cross so that you may be lifted up in this place. Decrease me so that you may increase. Father, let your people hear a word from you. We need it, Jesus. It's in your mighty name we all said together. Amen. 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 Family, when I looked up the word identity in the dictionary, it gave me two different definitions. Look at these with me. Number one, it says the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. And secondly, it says a close similarity or affinity. Let me read those again. It says, the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. And number two, a close similarity or affinity. Now, here's the reality with these de definitions. We live in a world where everyone wants to be known. Don't miss that. And because of this, we have so many different labels or identities that we have come to associate ourselves with. And if someone calls us something other than the identity we have associated ourselves with, meaning they call us something wrong, then we tend to get upset. But see, the problem with this is that that identity that we associated ourselves with yesterday might not be the same identity we associate ourselves with today which makes it virtually impossible not to step on somebody's toes in today's society. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. But hear me. 
I want to argue this, and, and, and you know why? You, you know why we struggle with identity so much? Because we all do. The reason we all struggle, and I'll say it again, if you missed it, it's because we all want to be known. We all want to be known. I mean, if I'm honest with you this week, this week, as I said before, it was a hard one, and it still is today. When I look at the death of George Floyd and many other black men and women at the hand of white police officers, I start to begin to think of my own encounters with systemic injustice or being pulled out of the police, out of a car for doing nothing, stopped and frisked and questioned and with no ticket or anything as I leave the scene. Uh, injustice haven't done anything wrong, I start to think about that. So when I go to that place and I, and I think about George Floyd and what happened to him and what's happened to me, it's easy for me to just throw my pastor of a multi-ethnic hat to the side. Follow me. It's easy for me to just shelve my identity as a family man. It's easy for me to put my Christianity over here and say, yeah, I'll deal with that later. Because you know what I need in that moment? I need you to see all of my blackness. I need you to know who I am. I need you to want to get to know me because that very well could have been me lying on that ground dead underneath a white police officer's knee. See, see when struggle occurs and things happen, we want to be known. And, and, and being known, hear me, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we need to be known. And the people need to know who we are. We need to do life with one another. But sadly, we live in a world where people don't really care. People don't really care about others as much as they do themselves, which is totally contradictory to the word of the Bible. When we read the Bible, family, that's not what it says. Because hear me, if you call yourself a believer and you truly care about others, then there's no way you can watch the murder of George Floyd and not be outraged. There's no way you can say that, that sit there and, and not cringe and say that's wrong. There's no way you can't look at that and say that it's not wrong. And, oh, let me see some explanation. No, 10 minutes on the ground. If you're reading the same Bible that I am, where Jesus crosses the lines with others unlike him and he stands up for people like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, or you take the whole crucifixion as an act itself, that's an act of justice. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he's hanging there with nails in each one of his hands, y'all. He's doing that for people like you and me, sinners who are not like God. And when he dies, y'all, he satisfies the wrath of God. Now, because if we believe, God's looking at Jesus and we're declared righteous through his blood and his blood alone. That's a justice act. You see, if you're reading the same Bible that I am, family, then, and, and we call ourselves as Christians, there's no way we can see injustice done towards anyone, no matter who they are, and then not stand up against it. Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But quite frankly, we don't live in a world where Jesus has been made much of. Can I be honest, just a little bit more? Because Jesus has not been made much of in our world, you know what happens? 
we tend to long more to be known more than we long to get to know the one who gives us identity. Mm. Mm. And, and, and this is problematic because if we don't know whose we are, then we are liable to let someone else and their perception of us control and give us identity. I, I know I just stepped all in somebody's kitchen with that one. If we don't know whose we are, then we're liable to let someone else's perception now control us and give us identity. For instance, if I don't know that I'm fully approved by Jesus and loved by him as a son, as a black man, and not the animal that black people have been so seemingly treated like here in America, then when I see things like what happened to George Floyd, y'all hear me, I'm liable to fly off the handle and now become the scary, angry black man that society has already given me as an identity. I, I, I'm just trying to keep it plain with y'all this morning. Hear me. Knowing your true identity is key. It's key. These verses simply let us know that if we believe we are God's children, which means our identity is a son or daughter of the Most High King, and that can't be taken away from us. But what we must pay attention to is what John says in verses, verse 2 of our text today. He says, that, look at it with me. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. See, this lets us know that although we are God's children, listen, now as believers on, on this side of heaven, we're his children but hear me, on this side of heaven, there will still be a struggle with identity because of us, because us fully being known as sons and daughters of God without the struggle of being known or labeled differently by others in this world is not a reality. It, does that make sense? I, I hope you're following me with this. See, it's still a struggle, even though we're sons and daughters of the most high, if we believe, be, because in this world, somebody labels you something else. Oh, you're a black Christian. Oh, you're, you're a white Christian. We're not just Christian. There's some other label or identity that we're associated with, not all the time by us, but by other people. But when you read this verse, the promise of this verse is that one day, don't miss it, our only status will be as a child of God. Oh, y'all just missed that. When you read this verse, the promise it lets us know that one day our only identity, our only status will be as a son or daughter of God. Y'all, that's good news. We won't be judged by our gender. We won't be judged by our color, our wealth, or our status. None of that. We will, be, we will be with God, and we will all be sons and daughters of the Most High if we believe. Y'all, that's something to look forward to. As you can see, I'm pretty passionate about this topic of identity. And I could keep preaching on this for quite a while. But instead, I have my good friend with me today, uh, Tyler Trinesky. He, he's going to share about his struggle with identity. And, and I, I want you to just, as you listen to his struggle with identity, just let God work in your heart because we all deal with identity struggle. And it may look different. Yours may not be race. 
It could be wealth. It could be gender. It could be sexual orientation. It could be all these things where your identity is wrapped up in that. And so I want you to, to listen to his struggle because, again, my goal with this sermon series wasn't just to preach good sermons, but it's to, for you to see real people, real struggles, but still pursuing Jesus. Take a look at this interview with me. Well, family, uh, I, as I told you again, and throughout this series, the struggle is real. Um, we didn't want to, I don't want to just preach messages. That wasn't just the goal of this, but we want to uh, point out real struggles with real people and how we're continually uh, pursuing Jesus in our walks. And so today I got my good friend Tyler with me and I, and I can't wait for you guys to hear his story. And as we talk about this struggle with identity and we wrestle with the text, first John three, one to three, and how God has loved us and we're sons and daughters of the most high. Um, and our identity is solely found in him, but yet we're here on this side of heaven and we still have struggles. We still have things that we go through. And sometimes it can feel like our identity is lost in the midst of the things that we're going through or we're struggling with. But yet the scripture tells us that we're part of the family of God. And, and, and that should play out in how we live our lives and dictate how we, we live. So I can't wait for you to hear my brother Tyler's story. He is, he's not a native Chicagoan, but you know, he's, he went to school at Trinity and he spent some time in the Chicago area. And so I, I got to say, he's somewhat of a Chicagoan. He's, he's from claiming. Yeah, yeah, you can claim him, right, brother? I had some time in the South Loop, for what it's worth, I guess. A few there summers. You so. Hey, yeah. well, here, here you go, man. There you go. And he, he also is now planning a church in Cincinnati, co-planting co in Cincinnati, um, part of Orchard Group, which we were planted out of, too. So, dear brother, and I'm, I want us all to be prayerful for their church. We'll hear more about their church here in the coming future. Um, but today I, I'm going to let him share his story with you a little bit and he's going to just really break down kind of this struggle with identity a bit more for us so Tyler man let's jump in let's jump straight in and um, man I'd love for you to just share a little bit about your story and 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 when you learned early on in your age uh, or in your in your life that you were adopted what impact did that have on your life yeah yeah I uh I I mean, I really can't remember a time in my life when I didn't know I was adopted. So my parents had tried for seven years to have a child of their own, and it just became more and more apparent over time that uh, that wasn't going to be happening. They were in, on all kinds of treatments. They talk about early sort of hormone treatments and just the mood swings and the anger spikes. And it, we always get a big chuckle around the house hearing about those days of trying that were also really painful days uh, for them. So of course, there was a huge celebration. Uh, when they got the phone call that a baby boy was available and one that they could adopt. And so they remind me all the time growing up, they paid good money for me uh, and it's a purchase they do not regret. And so I was always, I grew up uh, with this notion of, or with this awareness of being adopted. Uh, and in my mind, that meant being chosen and being selected. Uh, my parents were believers. And so it was always presented to me as Tyler, God brought you into our family for a reason. There's a big purpose for your life. There's so much bright possibility ahead. We as your parents are grateful for the gift that it is to have you here. And so we wanna raise you well and steward this opportunity well. And so in many ways, uh, I think the story of my adoption was profoundly shaping. I mean, just from those earliest moments to have a strong sense of purpose, to have a strong sense of uh, a bright future, a good God who would work in all these ways, visible and invisible, to put me into a loving family. I mean, it was just this really, really formative 
a way to start thinking about who I was and what value I had. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that my parents were always open about my adoption and appreciate the way that that shaped me. And it, it did set me off on a pretty good trajectory uh, until, I don't know, things got a little more complicated around middle school and high school. Wow. Yeah, man. It sounds like, you know, just that the adoption, and I, I know some of that is always not good for certain people, but it sounds like you had a, a pretty decent experience. But what happened kind of in your life that, as you were just alluding to, that made it a little bit more difficult to be excited about your future and 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 going forward after middle school yeah so I uh you know you imagine so this adopted only child so I got all that only child pressure too uh I want to succeed I want to please my parents I want to make them happy and I happen to be kind of a more natural nerd anyway so it's like I'm doing okay in school uh I don't I'm glad you can't see my whole body but I'm not an athlete by any means uh, so but for everything's the head up right uh so loved school loved art and theater and all these things and was doing well at them in school. Um, and so you experience a lot of affirmation that way. And so I think I just got um, really addicted. And it, I mean, it's a good thing to want to feel value and feel love from your parents, but addicted to kind of performing for love. Um, and so what happened in middle school was that something, I uh, became aware of something in me that uh, felt like it would be disapproved of and I had no idea what to do with that. So around middle school, uh, when everyone else was getting their first crushes on, you know, girls in class, I realized that my feelings weren't quite the same. And that was the first time I was aware that I had uh, attractions towards other guys. And so what do you do with that yeah. uh, as a Christian kid growing up in the mid 90s, uh, where kind of the world that I'm in, and specifically the church world at that time, was one that uh, probably had more condemning things to say about gay people. Um, and it was just something in my mind that once I became aware, oh my gosh, this might be true of me as well, mm -hmm. uh, that my immediate reaction is this is something I can never talk about. This is something I will never be able to process with my parents, with any trusted person ever. Mm -hmm. I need to push this away, uh, make sure no one ever finds out because if they do find out, uh, they totally won't approve of me. No one will love me. I'm going to be abandoned. Um, and so it really led kind of in middle school and high school to this uh, performing on one hand, let me perform as much as I can and do as well as I can in school and in church, and then also a hiding on the other hand, let me do everything it takes uh, to keep this secret, uh, because if anyone would ever know, that would be, you know, the end of our relationship, and I would be just devastated when I felt their disapproval. Wow, man. Um, thanks for sharing that. And that's... It sounds pretty exhausting. That 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 sounds like soup. It sounds difficult. I mean, middle school in itself is just a treacherous place already. Um, it's, yeah, you're you're wrestling with your sexual identity and attraction. And I mean, how did that affect your faith as a child? And just how you looked at God, uh, growing up in a Christian family, and now you're struggling with, you know, God and your attraction. What, what did? How did that affect? affect your faith? I, uh, I know I'm kind of a smiler and I have a pretty bright disposition, but I got really mad. I mean, those were, I think, angry years, um, very bitter years. I was mad at God. Uh, I didn't understand why he would allow people to have this experience of attraction that I never chose. You know, it's not like I woke up one day and said, hey, I want to feel this way. Right. Um, and so it's like, why would you let this happen? 
And then why would you say in your word that this isn't your intention for human beings? Why would you put me um, in such a difficult spot? And honestly, why would you make it so hard for me to please you? You know, I mean, as this little, you know, again, this adopted only child achiever type, it's like, all I want to do is please people. Uh, why would you make it so difficult, God, for me to please you? So I was really, really angry. Mm. And especially probably in my later high school years, I think that anger just kind of cemented into a bit more of like a, a rebellious spirit, sort of like, you know, to heck with you, God, I'm going to do what I want on my own. Um, and so, I mean, that, that was kind of an era of a lot of secret hookups and I would just, I don't know, I'd turn up the radio really loud, driving over to people's house to kind of drown out my own thoughts. It's like, I don't care. I don't want to think about it. I'm going to do what I want. Um, it was just a very, um, you know, a very angry time, honestly, when I think about that era and particularly in faith, there was just a lot of uh, frustration towards God about my reality. Wow, man. Yeah, that's a, uh, yeah. I, I can only imagine, and just the anger there. Um, and if I'm honest with you, I felt some of that this week too myself with, right? with George Floyd and everything there. And it's like, God, really? How long is this going to go? And just, and, yeah, it's been tough. But that, man, that, and I can only imagine, I, I feel you in that. And so, man, if you can help me, just help us work. How did you work through that? That difficult tug of war, just, um, just, being mad at God, rebelling, and how did you work through that? Yeah. Um, one thing that was really helpful is, so I wound up at IU, so that's another thing we have in common. Oh, uh, come on. <laughs> uh, and so Bloomington is still kind of holy, sacred ground to me, probably because so much fantastic transformation happened in my life while I was there. Uh, so at IU, was the first time that I was really ever open with Christian people about this tug of war that was going on on the mm -hmm. inside. So uh, it was a, a day to crew Bible study and I just decided, hey, for better or worse, I'm just gonna go ahead and share this and unload and it'll become their problem, you know, I'm gonna say it. And that first step uh, led to many more steps that were so healing in terms of once things were out in the open in terms of how I was feeling, how frustrated I was feeling, how lonely I was feeling. Um, that actually allowed other people to speak into it and to care well for me and to help me process well and in some ways to take steps away from like compulsive and addictive behaviors um, in other ways just to find really good friendships. So I'd say that, I don't know, my time in crew at IU where there was maybe openness about it for the first time was really helpful. Um, that, of course, connected me to all sorts of great mentors and other pastors. And so I had uh, this awesome mentor at IU for kind of the last three years that I was there, so sophomore through my senior year, who, you know, weekly were processing this and thinking about what does it look like to follow Jesus now? What does it look like to follow Jesus now? Um, I mean, one of the big things we had to do that it was a good process was re-examine the biblical texts, because there are some that would look at the biblical texts and say, hey, there's actually nothing in scripture that would prohibit uh, you kind of following your feelings and living the way that would feel most natural to you. And so we had to dive back in, me and this mentor, and say, is that the case? Um, and so we had a, I mean, cover to cover scriptural exploration there. Um, I mean, Genesis through Revelation and took our time. I mean, what I loved about that mentor, there was no rush. I felt no pressure. Um, it was really just a period to say, 
as you look at this whole story of who God is and how God's revealed himself, uh, what sticks out to you. And so that was also a period where a lot of my convictions around sexuality were formed. And I really did um, come to the conviction that it's like, man, our whole world is not as it should be. Um, So God designed, I think, relationships to be between men and women for a lifetime in this beautiful thing called marriage. And our world is profoundly broken. Um, And so there's all sorts of people just like me for whom the experience of intimacy as God designed it just becomes really complicated and complex and difficult to navigate. And so uh, I've spent, and we can talk more about this too, I've spent much of my adult life learning how to navigate uh, the world as a single uh, celibate uh, man, although I'll say I'm in good company with Jesus, right? Who was also single, get your Bibles out. Uh, so, I mean, that's, anyway, Jesus is a hero for many reasons. So that was happening during this time. And the other thing that was huge was probably in that college period, uh, I first was able to recognize uh, the role that shame had played for years and still plays, honestly, but had played uh, in my life. I just got language for what shame is. Um, there's this great counselor who works with a lot of LGBT clients who talks about shame and homophobia being different. So he says, shame is the fear of being unlovable. Homophobia is the fear of being gay. He says, in culture, we've done a lot to lessen the occurrence of homophobia. So there's more visibility. There's more you know, shows on Netflix with gay characters. There's you know, great movies like Moonlight or something. There's stuff going on that in culture, we've lessened homophobia that he says we haven't done much to work through people's shame. And this psychologist, who's not a Christian psychologist at all, um, just someone doing good work with the LGBT community, says that shame is really prevalent in our particular community because uh, you feel so profoundly different at a young age and you don't know what to do with that feeling of difference. And so it's easy to let that internalize as shame, come up with all kinds of coping mechanisms. And that's when I realized it's like, gosh, I have a shame problem. Um, And I'm afraid that if people ever did know me, they would reject me. And so that became a huge, I mean, a huge thing that I had to work through both relationally, but even when it comes to faith, I mean, can you can project that shame on God and think if God knows me, God will really hate me. So uh, a lot happened at IU, Derek, and it, uh, it was really, really, really helpful first steps in processing to realize that I've got some shame stuff that I need to work through. Wow. Wow. Now say that again. You said um, homophobia is the fear of being. Yep. Homophobia is the fear of being gay. Shame. And this will preach. Shame is the fear of being unlovable. And I know that there's more people that experience that than just folks with my story, but the fear of being unlovable. um, I mean, that'll handicap a life of, a life of faith, you know. Yeah, that that's that's huge, and it, it, you hit it on the head. Like that's not just your struggle, but that's my yeah. struggle. That's everyone's yep. struggle. That shame struggle, and so even with that, family, as you're listening to Tyler talk, again, mm-hmm. these are we want you to think about your your struggle where you are, um, and as he shares of how we work through our our own stuff. So, man, tell me some more about this this shame, though. Like, what did that look like for you to fight against shame? Because as you said, I would preach, but in your walk, your struggle, man, what did that look like for you to fight against shame? I mean, this, um, I'm just feeling my feelings, but I had a mentor once tell me, there's no better feeling in the world than being desired. Um, and I think that there's, there's some profound truth in that. There's no better feeling in the whole world than feeling desired. 
And in my struggle against shame, um, I think both something I've learned that's unlocked all kinds of things in my heart and in my world, but also something I have to keep relearning and reminding me, uh, reminding myself of, is that at the heart of the Christian faith, the good news is that God desires us. Um, And it's not that we desire him, and it's not that we've performed and pleased him. But that's that the heart of all everything that the Christian faith teaches. It's that God desires us, um, and that is the beginning. I mean, that's in some ways that's the whole antidote to shame. In other ways, first hearing that is the beginning of shame releasing its grip on your heart. But just this idea that I am deeply desired by God, um, and that nothing I could do can make Him desire me more. Nothing that I could do can make Him desire me less. That He's proven His desire by sending Himself to the cross on my behalf. I mean, it, it is, it's the core gospel of Christianity, but that idea of being desired, beloved, wanted, chosen, adopted into the family, um, that's the truth that had to sink in uh, for me to begin to work through from shame and to recognize that nothing had to be hidden. I mean, that God desired me knowing everything. I mean, Paul says in Romans, while you're still sinners, Christ died for us. With eyes wide open, um, Jesus went to the cross for me. I think that is... I don't know what starts to ship away at that shame piece and make me realize, okay, I don't have to be in hiding. I don't have to be in fear. I don't have to worry that God really, you know, he says he loves me, but he really doesn't love me. It's like, no, he, he knows. And he does. That's good, man. You said with eyes wide open, (laughs) like the fact that Jesus dies and he knows all it's not, it's not, Oh, I'll, I'll put that one under the rug and I'm not going to look at that. No, he knows what we're struggling with. And, and that dispels kind of that shame. Wow, that's huge, man. So how did, with that, how do you, how do you think about identity? Then? How does that play into identity for you um, in Christ in your walk now? Yeah. With, with God, how does that look? I mean, uh, so in many ways, it means that I've, I've had to just dive into the truth that in some ways, uh, above all other identities, um, there is this special identity in Christ that matters most. Um, this idea of being beloved, of being valued, of being part of God's family, that if I'm, you know, writing a list of all these things that are true of me, um, that's, you know, at the foundation, that's what true is true is true is true, that I'm beloved by God and have been uh, invited into his family. Um, and at the same time, that's not to negate other identities, though. And so this is something that I think has been done for uh, people with my story in churches. This is something that's been done to people of color in churches. Um, where it's like, hey, can you not bring that part of you or not be so loud with that part of you in our church? Whatever it is, it's looked all kinds of terrible ways. Um, but I think often of there's this guy, Nicholas Wolterstorff, who's a philosopher, a uh, great Christian philosopher, and he lost his son in a tragic, I mean, tragic, tragic uh, backpacking, you know, mountain climbing accident. Um, wow. I think his son was 25 or 26. Um, and so Walter Storff writes this deeply painful book called Lament for a Son. Um, and he says in it about identity, he says, if someone asks me, so Nick, Nicholas Walter Storff talking about himself, it's like, if someone asks me about myself and says, who are you? Uh, mm. Tell me about yourself. It's not long before I say, I am one who's lost a son. Um, and he says that loss determines my identity, not all of it, but much of it. And it belongs within my story. Um, And so when I think about identity now, it's like, yes, at the foundation is the fact that I'm in Christ and nothing can change that. And God's chosen to lavish his love on me. And I've said yes to following him and I am in Christ. 
Um, but there's other things as well that shape my identity. As Walter Storff says about losing his son, not all of my identity, uh, but much of it. And there's parts of my story that belong as well. And so when I think about identity or particularly my Christian identity, what's fundamental is that I'm in Christ. What's also true is that so much of my experience of God and experience of church has been shaped by this very real sexuality journey that I've been on. And to deny that or to minimize that or to try to stuff that away uh, isn't going to do me any good and ultimately isn't going to do the church any good. I mean, we can be honest and open about these other identities that we bring with us into church. I think we should be able to. And so uh, navigating that, of course, is a a whole struggle in and of its own. But to try to own both and not to minimize one or to make my identity in Christ not the foundational identity. I mean, that's, that's where I'm trying to live. I mean, you mentioned it too, just the struggle of your story and now looking at the story of God, looking at the Bible and saying, well, it, his idea of sexuality is different than my attraction and I'm choosing to be a, a celibate male and, yeah. and honoring him. But although I can't, I can't deny the struggle still and yeah. which the, that shame and the way it works in that. And then you're saying, well, man, no, no, but my identity is in him. So I can bring all of that to the foot of the cross and he still accepted, which the church should be the same, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm doing something, I mean, and I, I am not, what I'm about to say, I'm not saying to brag about myself. Let me instead talk about a community. There's many folks like me yeah. uh, that believe the Bible has said what it says about sexuality and that God designed marriage and therefore sex to be between a man and a woman um, that also experience same-sex attractions that also say, okay, what does following Jesus look like for me now? So I'm not a lone hero in this regard, but I think what's difficult in this particular struggle is that culturally there's so much pressure that says, um, why are you denying these desires? You're brainwashed. Your faith is stupid. You don't have to do this. Uh, be who you are go find, you know, the handsomest boyfriend you can or the best girlfriend you can and be happy, you know, so that's one voice. Then there are voices within the church that say, you're not Christian enough, you're not saved enough, you talking about this struggle is a sign that you haven't really placed your faith in Jesus. And so you occupy this strange place in the middle where it's like, what do you want from me? Like I'm, I'm trying in one sense to radically follow Jesus uh, who seem to suggest that being married, though it's a beautiful gift in life, isn't fundamental to being human. I mean, Jesus becomes fully human, and he's not married. And so Jesus somehow says that there's a way for me as a single person to experience full humanity. I mean, John 10, life to the full, brimming, running over. I mean, so so Jesus says that's real. Um, and so people from outside the church say, no, 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 that's not real. You'd be more fulfilled if you got a partner. And people from inside the church say, no, no, no. The fact that you have any kind of struggle uh, says that you haven't really put your faith in Jesus. And sometimes it just makes you want to throw up your hands and say, I don't, I don't know what you want from me. I'm trying my best to be like Jesus. Um, and I don't think I'll ever regret that. I mean, a decision to become more like Jesus, those aren't decisions you regret. But it can be a very precarious spot, um, just being in the middle of those two worlds that you're, I mean, you're letting everyone down sometimes, it feels like, um, which is all the more reason that you have to have your confidence rooted in that identity that I'm God's beloved, and nothing can change that. Wow. wow. That's heavy, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. You hit it on the head. It's a struggle, like, even, and sadly, walking into church, and I want to hear you just talk about your hopes with the church, but it is. You feel like you have to check who you are at the door in terms of 
what you've been through and 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 it's quite the opposite where god is saying don't oh, bring all of that to me i I'm accepting you as are. Let me let me work on you and let me give you strength. But but yet the world and that we live in and sadly the church has been different. So man, tell me about your hopes for the church. Yeah. The church. Like what what is what are your hopes for the church? Yeah, I um I have so many hopes. I mean, it's probably why both you and I got involved in church planting, right? I mean, we can see what the church can be and we want to give our lives to trying to make that kind of church. So I, I don't, I think a lot. Um, so in 1969, which was a huge year um, in our country, there's all kinds of assassinations, there's unrest, and specifically in kind of the world of LGBT um, history, there's um, different advances that are trying to be made publicly, advocating for certain rights in the workplace or in housing. Um, and so there was this New York Times op-ed published in 1969 by this guy, um, Don Teal, he used a fake name, Richard Forsyth, because even at the time it wasn't like, can I even publish this under my own name or will I get attacked, right? So he publishes this New York Times op-ed under a fake name. Um, and the title of the op-ed is, Why Can't We Live Happily Ever After Too? Mm. And what he is lamenting in this op-ed is that at the time, and again, things have changed in media, but at the time, any media portrayal um, of a gay person uh, just ended in tragedy. It either ended in suicide, uh, it ended in them being really self-loathing and having an awful life, and ended in some um, yeah, just tragic accident. He's just like, I have no um, heroes, there's no images. It's hard for me to, to even imagine um, a bright future for someone in my circumstance. So he's, you know, he's asking this question, why can't we live happily ever after too? And I think about that a lot um, particularly as it comes to church and particularly when it comes uh, to church for same-sex attracted individuals saying, I think there's a current lack in the church um, of stories, of heroes, of role models that help you know, a, a teenager who might be noticing for the first time the shape of their attractions, help them have a vision for what future life could look like. Yeah. Um, what would it look like for me to follow uh, Jesus in this way? And is that even fulfilling? Is that a vision of life that's attractive to me? Or does it just look like, man, that's too heavy, too hard. People are mean and choose not to understand. So no, thanks. I don't want that. You know, see you later, church. Um, and so, I mean, so much of my energy, uh, I think, really does go into thinking and dreaming about what is, you know, a church that's safe for singles? What is a church that's safe for LGBT folks? I mean, what's a church really that's safe for all people to bring all of who they are to that church? and recognize that in Christ, there is joy. I mean, there is a, to use you know, Don Teal's language, there is a happy ending, um, both now in this life, and of course, in eternity, uh, that Jesus's promise of life to the full is really a here and now promise. It's anyone who leaves me, you know, and leaves these things behind to follow me is getting a hundredfold in this lifetime, as Jesus's promise in Mark. And so this idea that like, no, there's rich life for people in Christ now, um, I think about that all the time, and just people being able to come in to a church where they don't have to erase parts of who they are as a prerequisite for membership and can instead bring, you know, all of who they are uh, to the church. I mean, I, I, clearly, I clearly love social science because um, yeah. I keep quoting all this stuff. I mean, one of the, the ideas from sociologists that stuck out in my mind, even when I'm thinking about this, but they talk a lot about statuses we all wear. And so there's this concept in sociology of the master status. Um, and so sociologists define this master status as like a status that has exceptional importance on our social identity 
and often that shapes our entire life. Wow. And they say that this master status, it can be ascribed, that is it's, it's given to you, or achieved, that is it's earned by you. Um, and so when I think about you know, a church or what are my hopes for the church, I would love to see a church that um, you know, invites people to follow Jesus and then ascribes, so gives people and reminds people that it's not just we, the church, that are giving it to Jesus. It's God who gives you this when he adopts you into his family, but ascribes the status of God's child to everyone who's part of that church and that it can't be taken away. You didn't do anything to earn it. You are in God's family through the blood of Christ, and you're part of this family. I mean, this is a community. And so now you've got this new master status. It erases none of your other statuses. So still bring all of who you are to this community, but we're gonna go ahead and recognize the primary thing about you is that you're in Christ. You're gonna bring that with us, and that means we can handle the rest, we can talk about the rest, we can process the rest, we can care for you in the rest. I mean, that would be an absolute dream to me. And it's possible. And I know it's work that you're doing at Renewal. I mean, it's part of why I love your church. You guys do talk about heavy and difficult stuff openly. And the only way you could do that and do that healthily is by knowing that what matters most is people's rootedness in Christ. And now that means we could talk about anything else. So I know that you know this. I mean, I love it about your church, uh, but it gets me excited about our little church in Cincinnati and other churches too, seeing more of that. Brother. I don't know if you noticed, I kind of leaned in a bit. <laughs> you, you started preaching, man. And now uh, that the master status is just, and I'm not going to over preach what you just said, because mm -hmm. just what you just said is, um, it's so key for us to understand that our church, we talk about checking your presuppositions at the door and just what you think. Um, and, and we have a non-essential clause in our beliefs versus the essential clause. And it's like, these are the essential things we stand on. And this is who we believe in. All that other stuff is non-essential and maybe not, it's not essential for salvation. Yep. So if we can agree on this and let that dictate our lives, that master status, as you said, we can work out all the other stuff. And that's yep. the only way that black, white, brown, you know, come on. you know, you know G, LBGT community yep. can come in and say, okay, this is who we were. This is what we bring in. But Jesus says that he's, he's died, he's died for us. God loves us. We're part of the same family. So now how does that actually dictate and play our play out in our lives together? And how do we sit at the table, even though you may be different um, and it may be a little bit hard for me to have the conversation or us to go there with one another. That's what God calls us to do. And that's family. Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah. Man, that, that's family. That's family. And, well, that's, it really is what I see you doing. I mean, through all kinds of renewal and even this AM campaign, your ability to have those tough conversations in my mind is rooted by your deep understanding uh, that people are beloved in Christ. And now if this person's my sister, or this person's my brother, we can talk about anything else, you know? I mean, and it's, I mean, it totally, and just in my view of knowing you and knowing your church, it shapes so much of your culture in a beautiful way. Wow. Thanks so much, Tyler. Family, that was good. Friends, this morning as we end, I, I, I have one question for you. Do you have a master's status? You heard Tyler talk about that. He said it could be achieved or it's given to you freely and it tends to dictate your life. You have a master's status. Is that status saved? by the blood of the lamb. Hear me, that's the only status or identity 
you don't have to work for, but comes with an immense amount of benefits. Mm. Salvation in heaven. That's the only identity that you can do nothing to lose it because it was given to you. This morning, hear me, we either sit in one of two camps when it comes to identity. We either sit in this place where identity is solely in Christ or we sit in the other place where identity is wrapped up in someone or something else. Which one is it for you? Friends, if there was another identity, gender, race, sexual orientation, or wealth that could give us all that we wanted, then hear me, Jesus would not have had to die. He wouldn't have had to go to the cross. Family, this morning, won't you just surrender who you are and your rights fully to God and in doing so experience the freedom of truly being known and accepted? And when you do, let him do the rest. Let him do the work on you. Maybe you're listening right now and that's you and you're saying, I'm struggling with my identity. I'm struggling with where I am. This week has been tough. This year has been tough. Friend, hear me. If you need questions answered or you need to talk with somebody, there are people online right now. All you have to do is click that live prayer button. We're here to talk with you. We're here to be with you. If you're on another site, there's, there should be a link that's dropped right now. There's a number you can text. I say this every week when we're in Sunday service. I say, don't leave this place the same way you came in. Hence the same thing today. Don't leave this online platform the same way you walked in listening today. Hear me, God. He's loved you so much. He loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. And through belief in his death, burial, and resurrection, we not only now are called children of God, but we also get the benefit of experiencing heaven, eternity with him forever and ever. Y'all, that's good news. That's good news, family. I know, as I've said every week, I get it. The struggle right now today here on this earth this week is real. But as I've said each week, family, I need you to hear me and I need you to believe with me. God is greater. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. You are a good God. We indeed give you all the praise, all the honor, and the glory. Father, I pray that we would know you and know your love and know your goodness. That we'd find our identity solely wrapped in you. That there's freedom there. There's acceptance. There's approval. There's significance. And even when we don't feel it on this side of heaven, let us be consumed with your truth, knowing what you believe about us 
rather than what others believe about us. And holding on to the promise that one day the identity that will matter and the only one that we will have is that we are son or daughter of the Most High God. Let us hold on to that. Let us believe that this morning. Maybe for the first time or resubmitting again today because you are good, Father. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and everyone says together, Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 930 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.